0: Welcome to this special edition of the NACE podcast series discussing tixagivimab, silgavimab, brand name, Evusheld. I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, professor of family and community medicine in the Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. This is the second of a three-part series focusing on tixagivimab, silgavimab. In the first podcast, we gave a brief overview Then discuss challenges and opportunities in identifying the right patient who might benefit. In today's podcast, the second installment of this series, we're going to do a deeper dive. We're going to talk about how it works, the clinical trial data, and provide an update on how the characteristics of the current viral variants decrease their susceptibility to being neutralized. Then, in the third and final episode, we'll talk more about unmet needs and protecting patients against COVID and the importance of layering mitigation and protection methods for those who are most at risk. This podcast series is supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. Joining me for today's discussion, we are really privileged to have Dr. Myron Levine. Dr. Levine is professor of medicine and pediatrics and director of the Vaccine Research Clinic at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Levine.
1: Thanks, Neil. It's a pleasure to join you for this discussion.
0: Myron, a lot has happened over the last two months that's affected the clinical efficacy of tixagavimab, silgavimab. I want to say at the outset of our podcast that the high degree of efficacy seen in the trials can no longer be expected with the current circulating variants. We'll come back to that. That said, can you tell our listeners what tixagavimab, silgavimab is and how it works?
1: Sure. So this is a cocktail, and that's the word that the company uses to call it. It actually consists of two monoclonal antibodies, one each made from antibody-producing cells, interestingly enough, from a husband and wife couple that were recovering from COVID-19. Each antibody was shown to neutralize, that is, immobilize COVID-19 so that it couldn't infect, Uh, cells. Moreover, the cells from this couple were altered to produce a special kind of antibody that had three important properties. Each binds to a non-overlapping portion of the spike protein of the virus that is essential for virus infection. Thus, the ability of the virus to escape control by one antibody would still leave the antibody effective, that is the cocktail, effective against the virus. So two is better than one in this situation. The antibody molecule was altered genetically in the FC portion. This is a portion of the antibody that determines how long it survives in the bloodstream. Because they altered it, the cocktail is designed to be effective for nine months or longer. And finally, the FC portion of the antibody, which was considered, considered not proven, to have the potential to produce antibody-mediated damage to COVID-infected tissues, something we think happens in natural disease anyway. So they've, they altered the, the FC portion further to remove this theoretical concern. It no longer would be able to do that. So, Neil, let me add that Every it's something else, everybody should be vaccinated, immunized, and be up to date with their boosters. I know it doesn't work well in everybody, but it must, it might work to some in everybody, probably does. And, and I, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, the reason we're talking is because there are many immunocompromised people who will not respond act adequately to vaccination, and a few who won't tolerate it, but it's mostly people who don't respond well. So this cocktail fills the niche of providing passive immunization with antibodies that cannot be stimulated by active immunization, which is vaccination. Or if vaccination doesn't work, maybe it doesn't work well enough. So this is filling that niche.
0: And it's an important niche because my understanding is that there are about 3 million people in the United States who might fall into this category of having some degree of immunosuppression, immunocompromised, that would make it such that they don't have a similar response to vaccination that, that most of us do. And, and, the, and the truth is that... <laughs> For those of us who have been vaccinated, we've been allowed, ela- essentially, been able to slowly re-enter into the activities that we do. But this is still a big problem for those three million people. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, Myron. I had no idea about the husband and wife part of this yeah, story. Isn't interesting?
1: Yeah, um, it, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, uh, really I uh, think interesting phenomenon, and, and they're very proud of it actually. Um, uh, okay, so um, I, you know I carry the same number you do, uh, about three million is what it is, and and it's a variety of people. It's people that uh, are born with immune with errors in immune function and don't allow them. There are adults who can develop it, uh, develop immune deficiency. Uh, certainly, chemotherapy for cancer and other things. There are therapies, as you know, for autoimmune disease that are designed to alter the immune response. And that's good for the disease, but it also is not good if you get COVID. All of these together probably exceeds 3 million people in the U.S.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It seems that anecdotally, I know for our hospital service, the people who are still being admitted with serious illness fall into two groups. They're either those uh, immunocompromised people or the very frail elderly where, exactly. um, it, it has, it goes through a nursing home pretty quickly. Um, can you briefly go over the clinical studies and their results recognizing that they were done prior to this change in, uh, variants?
1: Yes. There are two important studies. The pivotal trial for this cocktail, which was called ProVent, um, uh, Included about thirty five hundred recipients of the cocktail that previously had not been infected and not immunized. It was actually early in the uh, epidemic, and these people got the the actual uh, product, or they got placebo. Uh, it, 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 actually, the thirty five hundred got the cocktail. Uh, half as many got the placebo, and that's an important number to remember. I'll tell you why. Uh, the endpoint though, was clinically apparent, PCR-proven COVID-19 infection. So recognize that's a pretty low bar, because anybody that had a sore throat and got tested and was PCR positive would consider, quote, a failure. However, that's the way it was designed, because they wanted to get an answer in a hurry. Uh, I think that's the reason. The cocktail turned out to be 83% effective in preventing any infection. Importantly, and this is, I think, what I was getting at, there were no hospitalizations in the cocktail recipients and five in the placebo recipients. And remember, again, that half as many got placebo, so five versus zero is almost like 10 versus zero. So that was the the first important study. And my only criticism of the study is it didn't have a lot of immunocompromised people, which is what we're talking about now the second study did it was a matched cohort study in the uh, va system of transplant recipients so they found uh 1700 transplant patients who got the cocktail and 5400 who did not and they uh, and these were matched from a much larger number to be similar in age and type of chemotherapy etc and, and and um the other important thing to mention is these people now were immunized and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and we didn't have uh, the Omicron variant yet but uh, they did have variants at this point and in this study of severely immunocompromised people effectiveness was 67% with that low bar but most importantly 87% of people that were uh, 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 it was 87% effective Against hospitalization in people that got the cocktail, so uh, that's really my the best proof of principle that the cocktail is useful in immunocompromised people, highly immunocompromised people.
0: yeah that's an impressive degree of efficacy and, and directly relates to the group that we talk about using this in. Um, can you discuss how resistance to the dual monoclonal antibodies occurs?
1: Yes, I don't understand it completely because I think it's uh, complicated, and I think the virus is terribly clever at having figured out this complicated thing. But COVID nineteen is an RNA virus; it's an infection by an RNA virus, uh, and uh, RNA viruses mutate much faster than other viruses we know, like herpes viruses, a hundred times faster. So you have zillions of viruses in people because it's growing in them and they're mutating at a high rate. Uh, Now with this frequent mutation rate, there's the potential that the target of the monoclonal antibody, remember this is a portion of the spike protein, spike protein will change a little bit. That's the mutation. And if the change is sufficient, the antibody might not bind to it. I think what usually happens is that the change is not sufficient to prevent binding but to prevent binding fully or for long periods of time or something like that. So you have a loss in sensitivity, loss in the ability to prevent the infection. So this is why, again, we have two antibodies. If this happened to one of the antibodies, you still have the other one around. I guess if you wait long enough and you have enough infected people and the virus is there long enough, eventually you'll hit the jackpot, uh, the virus will become resistant in both of its sensitive sites, and the uh, antibody might not work. Another thing I think is interesting is that you know where this is likely to happen? It's likely to happen in immunocompromised people. Why is that? It's because they don't have a good immune response immediately. You and I might. We would get infected. We have not only the antibodies that we make Specifically, there in the cocktail, but we have a, a lot of other antibodies and T cell responses, and so on. And even if the virus develops mutation, we would nip it in the bud, and it wouldn't get out there into the community. But if you're immunocompromised, then you allow the virus to keep changing, and every time the body tries to affect it, it can change to meet that effect. So you're selecting out over time resistant virus. And it's well described. There's some really nice studies that show multiple, multiple variants occurring in the same person until they finally kill the person. So uh, this is another important reason why we don't want immunocompromised people to have an infection very long. We don't want them to be sick, but we don't want them to be sources of variants.
0: Wow. I, I had no idea of the public health implications of COVID infection and the immunocompromised. I've obviously been aware of the personal implications taking care of them in the hospital. That's a whole nother level of concern and need to make sure that, that, that this group of people are covered. Can you update us on the current status of the variants and how they've evolved to be less able to be neutralized by the monoclonal antibodies?
1: Well, unfortunately, there have been antibodies, mostly single antibodies, but actually an antibody combination as well, uh, that have ceased to work against COVID-19 infection uh, and uh, they actually uh, are no longer used, and the government suggested they not be used for this purpose. So it, it's clear, even as we speak, that variants are being selected nationally. It's part of the natural uh, of phenomena of, of any viral infection. It's happening worldwide, actually, um, and 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 there are viruses that are developing that resist both components in the cocktail. I, I looked at the data last night, and my, it's my guess that somewhere between 35 to 50% of v- viruses causing what we call COVID-19 uh, uh, can still be prevented by the cocktail, but we're moving in the wrong direction. It looks like that more and more of the virus is becoming resistant. Um, it, it doesn't mean it wouldn't work entirely, because what I'm saying is if you look in the lab, that doesn't work as well. That's true. But, as I say, it still worked to mitigate the infection, and it's really hard to measure that, and that's been a problem throughout our dealing with COVID-19. Uh, but it, it's in flux, and I think we're moving in that the direction of failing, and I, I suspect we don't have a chance to talk about what would happen otherwise if it fails.
0: Yeah. now, what does the future look like in your opinion for long-acting monoclonal antibodies?
1: Well, I, I'm going to add one thing to that and tell you what I wanted to say about um, uh, what's in the works, and, and I guess it's the same answer to your question. First of all, everybody should know that the CDC and some state labs, and, and even private researchers who are interested in this topic, are continually tracking variants. They're They're doing genetic analysis, and we know from week to week what's happening. That's their job then the job of physicians, like people listening to this call and and infectious experts and others who who may not be on the call to keep track of that. And when they have to make a decision as to whether or not to use a cocktail such as this one, you have to ask, is it worth it? If it's still 35 to 50% likely to work, in my opinion, it's worth it because it's a very safe uh, intervention. But uh, I think we'll leave that up to individual physicians to decide. And finally, I do know that manufacturers are constantly looking at the same problem and are developing new replacements that will deal with this uh, problem of resistance to uh, monoclonal antibodies.
0: It is just amazing to as you describe that, to think about the amount of science that has gone into this and just how we've advanced with our science over the last 20 years to be to be able to even do this. We're about out of time on our podcast. Are there any last thoughts you want to share with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I just want to emphasize again that even though we we say we're giving vaccination a bad rap here everybody should be vaccinated optimally and boosted because it's very likely in most people it will do some good. So so that's true. Secondly, the monoclonal antibodies are really safe. And the risk-benefit calculation in general will be to use them as long as there's a reasonable proportion of virus that's sensitive to them. And I think each individual Physician is going to have to make that decision, but there's plenty of information around to make the decision.
0: That is so helpful. I just want our listeners to realize when we are taping this; it's December sixteenth, twenty twenty-two, so that people have a point in time they understand the context, the date of our discussion. Uh, Myron, this has been an absolute pleasure uh, talking about this topic with you, and and just understanding things in a lot more depth than than I think we usually do. Thanks so much.
1: All right. It's been my pleasure, really.
0: For the National Association for Continuing Education, NACE, I'm Dr. Neil Skulnick. This episode has been sponsored by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. Thanks for joining us, and we'll look forward to discussing more details in episode three.